This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. We find ourselves in Romans uh, chapter number three this morning. Um, excited about that. Uh, I thought we were going to make it all the way through uh, this uh, uh, through verse number 18 and wrap it up today, but I, I regret to inform you today that we're going to take one more week here, okay? Uh, we got to, to look, I got to look at this passage, destruction, mir- misery, the forfeiting of God's peace, and it says there's no fear of God before their eyes, and so I started uh, outlining the fear of God, and it just got longer and longer and longer and longer and a little bit longer, and I thought to myself, I'm going to do you a favor, and I'm going to make this a follow-on message, talking about the fear of God. And so uh, you can thank me later for that, because you'll actually make it to lunch today. Uh, and so our 10 o'clock service will actually make it uh, to dinner tonight. Uh, and so that'll be a blessing. And so uh, thanks for being here this morning. Romans chapter 3, uh, starting in verse uh, number 10. Again, we find ourselves here uh, in this passage where Paul completely obliterates the idea that anyone could possibly be righteous enough to earn eternal life. Uh, He goes on to describe the sinful man that is apart from God, and it goes from bad to worse. Uh, This already piles on to what Paul has shown us in Romans chapter 1, where he talks about those who have turned away from the wisdom of God, created their own wisdom and uh, their own version of God and gone after idolatry. And Romans chapter 1, again, is an indictment on the sinfulness of mankind. And then it gets to Romans chapter 3, and it's almost a digging in a little bit deeper. This is really important because you and I, first of all, to understand the value and the greatness of Jesus Christ must understand, first and foremost, the depths of our sinful condition. We have to see how bad we truly are before we can see how great Jesus Christ is. And so as we uh, jump into Romans chapter 3 uh, this morning, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse number 10. Before we jump into today's message, I do want to say, be in prayer for the Stoker family. family. Um, John's uh, dad went home to be with the Lord yesterday. Uh, and so uh, faithful man, uh, missionary church planner on the Big Island. Uh, and no lie, our church is what it is today because of the... Uh, dedication and the fruit uh, from his dad, Alan Stoker's life. And so uh, they're going to be heading back to the mainland to be with family this week. And so uh, be in prayer for them if you would. Uh, I talked to John yesterday morning. I said, hey, John, you don't have to lead singing tomorrow. John's actually slated to preach tonight. I said, you don't have to do anything, man. You should take the day off. And he says, no, I know my dad would want me to be just be faithful and be in my place and do what I'm supposed to do. So uh, John will actually be, was already scheduled to bring the word tonight at our five o'clock service, uh, talking about apostasy. What happens when we renounce our salvation? What, what's the ramifications of that? And so he'll be uh, bringing the word tonight at five o'clock. And so just continue to pray for God's grace and strength on their family. I know for a fact that they'll appreciate that. Romans chapter 3, verse number 10. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throats in open sepulcher, with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. 
so many times, especially guys, we can get caught up in not following the instructions. I remember uh, one of our first Christmases that we had uh, kids, uh, I was putting together a bike for Thatcher. He was probably, I don't know, five years old, five, maybe six years old. I was putting together a, a bike. And for those of you that never had to put together a bike on Christmas Eve before, let me just say, pay the extra 30 bucks and have somebody put it together for you, okay? Well worth the investment. But I'm thinking to myself, like, this is like a ride of passage of fatherhood, putting together a bike on Christmas Eve. And it was absolutely awful. And if you've ever had to, like, you guys most of the time think to themselves, like, I can put together a bike. I mean, how difficult is it? You got a chain, you got pedals, you got, got wheels that go on, you got handlebars. How difficult can it really be? And then you begin putting it together, and then, like, certain pieces are missing, and certain things don't fit together right, and it doesn't look like it does on the picture, and you're kind of scratching your head. Uh, and, and for me, I'm the type of person that I don't like to go back ever again. Like, I don't want to regress. I want to continue pushing forward. And so there came a point where when you put the pedals on the, the bicycle that you were supposed to rotate them counterclockwise, but mine only went on clockwise. And I thought to myself, not a big deal. We, this is going to be fine, right? Uh, because I don't want to go back and undo everything that I've already done to this point. And so uh, I just kind of like, hey, we'll just go with it, right? It was about three o'clock in the morning. I'm putting together a bicycle. And there's parts everywhere and things like that. And I think to myself, this is good enough. And so sure enough, uh, it was good enough. And so knocked out again, probably an hour later, Thatcher wakes us up. It's Christmas morning. Let's wake up, you know, and there's a wrapped obviously bicycle in the under the Christmas tree and so he gets up and was like that's the one for last and he, he knows what it is and he's excited and so finally he gets to open his, his bike he's so thrilled uh, and he can't wait to get outside and ride it and so we take it downstairs and uh, put it out on the sidewalk and it's Christmas morning my son's getting ready to ride his bike that I put together on Christmas Eve and he gets on and the pedals only go backwards And he's like, Dad, it, it doesn't go. And so, but when you like go to put on the brakes backwards, it actually rides backwards. And I was just like, ah. And my wife was like, did you read the instructions? And I said, most of them. Um, and she was like, did you realize at any point that something wasn't right? It's like, yeah, those pedals that were supposed to go one way only went the opposite way. And I was like, it'll be fine. And she was like, it's not fine. It's like, yeah, I figured that out already. Thank you very much. And so... Hey, bud, why don't you go upstairs and play with your other toys, and Dad's going to get your bike really ready. And what did I have to do? I basically had to strip everything down and go back to, like, step one, because that one piece that I had was flipped around backwards. And, of course, you have to disassemble the entire bike to flip that one piece around. And so it would have been so much easier if I just read the instructions and done it the right way. Let me tell you this. When it comes to life, many times when you're in too deep and you realize you've made too many mistakes, you don't get a chance to just tear it back down and start over again. It's better just to do it according to the instructions the first time, do it right the first time, and then avoid all the hassle and headaches later. That's God's plan for my life. That's God's plan for your life. And so many times people say things like, well, life doesn't come with an instruction manual. Actually, it does, and it's called the Bible. Uh, God gives us a path to walk, and it's our job to, to understand that path and to obey that path, to walk that path. And God says, hey, if you'll just do what I've asked you to do, I'll work out all the details later. Now, the problem comes when you and I want to take our plans into our own hands. We want to do our own thing. We want to say, yeah, I know that's what the instruction manual says, but I think I've got this thing figured out. I've read enough of the instructions just to be dangerous, right? And so then we begin to go our own way, and the Bible tells us always how that ends up. 
when you and I sin against God, when you and I take matters into our own hands, when you and I do things our own way, destruction and misery are sure to come because destruction and misery are the result of sin. Oftentimes people ask, how a loving God can do such awful things? And they begin to talk about things like suffering, which we'll hear a little bit about tonight in, in tonight's message at 5 o'clock. Suffering is part of life not because God is evil, but because mankind is evil. God never intended for you and I to suffer. God created things in the Garden of Eden, and we were supposed to walk and talk with Him, and He was going to care for us, and there was never any death, never any sickness, uh, never any sin, but mankind rebelled against God, and the net result of that was destruction and misery. God says, hey, don't eat of this tree, because the day that you eat therein, you shall surely die. And the moment that Adam and Eve took a bite of that fruit that had been forbidden them by God, mankind began this process of decay, destruction, and misery. We take a look at the word misery in the dictionary. The definition is a state of suffering and want. It's a result of poverty, affliction, or circumstance. It's a place that causes suffering or discomfort and a state of great unhappiness and emotional distress. Now think about that for a second. The Bible tells us that when you and I go our own way and we do our own thing, that destruction and misery are sure to follow. Take a look at verse number 16. For those who are without God, the unsaved man, their feet are swift to shed blood, verse 15 says, destruction and misery are in their ways. This is a way of life for them. And you might know people that, that aren't Christians, and you say, well, I know people that aren't Christians. They have a really good life. They've got a lot of money. Uh, they've got a lot of status. They've got a lot of toys. Uh, they seem to have a great marriage and things like that. Again, typically we only see what's on the surface, but you go about an inch deep there, you'll find that there's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of heartache, there's a lot of destruction, and there's a lot of misery. It's always interesting to me how people are shocked by celebrity suicides and celebrity deaths and things like that uh, because these people who seem to have everything are actually really at the core very, very unhappy. I'm shocked that that's a shock to Christians, uh, that people who chase after the world will find it one day very, very empty because the Bible tells us that destruction and misery await those who do things their own way. And as you and I distance ourselves from God, and as the unsaved man distance himself from God, things will only get continually, progressively worse. This is not an improving condition. The further that you and I run from God, the less consequence that there will be. It's not the case for the unsaved man that the further and further that they get from God, the better off things will be. The Bible tells us that it's going to continue to get worse and worse. As we live in a society and we live in a world that turns away from God, the Apostle Paul actually challenged uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. You see, it, this works out a couple of different ways. First of all, for the unsaved man who turns his back on God, God's wrath and punishment is waiting for him. It's only a matter of time uh, before God's grace runs out 
And the only thing that's left for the person without Jesus Christ that's never been saved, that's never been born again, the only thing that's waiting for them is God's judgment, God's wrath, and God's punishment. That's coming for every single person on planet Earth because we deserve God's wrath. You and I have sinned against God. The wages of our sin is death, the Bible says. We see here that there's none righteous, no, not one. We've all gone our own way. We've all done our own thing. And because of that, we stand guilty before God. And the consequences of our sin is God's punishment in hell for all of eternity. That's what we deserve. But God loves you. God loves me. And the fact that he sent his son Jesus to die on our behalf, to die in our place. I was supposed to die. I was supposed to be punished for my sin. Why? Because I have chosen my own path. I've rebelled against God. I deserve to die. But God in his mercy and his grace sent Jesus to die in my place. And Jesus came, he suffered, bled, died, paid my penalty, your sin penalty on the cross, rose again the third day victorious over sin, death, and the grave to prove that he was exactly who he said he was. He was God in the flesh who had made payment for the sins of mankind. Now, you and I must make a choice. Will we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior? Will we put our faith and trust in his work on the cross? Will we receive that payment that he's made on our behalf? The Bible calls that being born again. Synonymous with the word saved. It means the same thing. Have you been saved? Have you been born again? Do you know for sure that your sins are forgiven? Has Jesus' payment on the cross been applied to your account personally? If not, you need to be saved today because God's punishment is coming for those who have not made payment for their sin. That's what we deserve. And so God's punishment on mankind, the Bible says that God is storing up his wrath. We'll see later in the book of Romans where God is forbearing on his wrath. He's put a pause on it for a moment to give you the opportunity to make things right. But God's punishment is coming one day. Now, for those of us that have been saved or born again, here's the good news. God's payment through Jesus Christ has been applied to our account, and we no longer owe God for our sin because we have been forgiven. We've been saved. We've been born again. That, that payment for sin has been wiped clean because it's been paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's good news for you and I. But please understand, despite the fact that you have been saved and born again and your sin debt has been paid, this does not mean that you and I can continue a lifestyle of sin apart from God. By putting faith in Jesus Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God. We're not allowed to go our own way and do our own thing any longer because God desires us to walk the path that he has for us. God desires to give you and I the good stuff that comes from life, that comes from obeying him. And so you and I, if we're saved, cannot rebel against God. And here's the good news about this. God doesn't punish us for our sin as his children. Because our sin has already been punished on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's really important that you make this distinction. So you're like, well, there's no consequences for our sin after we've been saved. No, there's consequences. It's just not called punishment. You see, punishment is punitive. You've created a crime and you're going to pay the time. The, the goal isn't reform. It's interesting in America today we have a I would, I would venture to say probably a fairly broken, uneven justice system, but that's a conversation for another day. But we have a system that's not really meant to rehabilitate. 
give people the tools that they need to go out and make change uh, when they get done. The idea is this, hey, you, you've done a crime, you're going to do the time. It doesn't matter what you do with your time. You can sleep the whole time. You can read books if you want to. You can work, work on your degree if you want to. You can uh, do a good works if you want to. You can go to a Bible study if you want to. You can sit around and watch cable TV. We don't care because our goal is not reform. Our goal is punishment. That's different from what God does to his children. God doesn't punish his children. He, here's a good Bible word, chastises his children. If you're taking notes, write Hebrews 12 out to the side of that. Chastisement is different. It's painful. It's hurtful. But the whole purpose of this is to bring you back to your father in a right relationship. Just like our children, when they go to touch a hot stove, we pull their hand back and smack their hand. We're not doing it because we're mean or we want to hurt our children. We're trying to protect them from harm. Your kid runs out in the road in the middle of traffic. You grab your kid by the shoulders and you look them in the eye and you say, don't ever do that again. Do you understand? It's not because we hate our kids. It's because we love our kids and we want to save them from harm. When God's children rebel against him, God is very stern with us. God will sometimes give us painful reminders that we don't wish to go back there again. This is not punishment. Our crime, the time has been paid by Jesus on the cross. The consequences of our sin have been paid. Chastisement is the loving correction of a father who wants to keep you near him. And so we need to understand the distinction. Christians will never see the wrath of God. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. Christians, when we disobey God, will see chastisement. And chastisement is, not, is incredibly painful. That's what Hebrews 12 says. Is that the, no chastening is pleasant for the season, but it brings forth good fruit in the end is what the Bible tells us. And so when you and I distance ourselves from God, if you're a Christian here today and you choose to walk your own path or I don't really need God anymore or I think I've got it from here, things will get progressively worse because God will crank up the heat on you to get you back into a right relationship with him where you realize I need to come back to the Father for the unsaved man who walks away from God, things will again will get progressively worse for him as he endures God's punishment for his sin. Now, you and I, when we sin, we sometimes make excuses for our sin. Well, my sin's not that big of a deal. My sin's not as bad as so-and-so's sin. Well, I mean, like in the big grand scheme of things, the things that I've done aren't really that bad. Oftentimes in talking with people through the gospel and sharing with them about Jesus Christ and what he's done, I'll say things like, have you ever committed a sin well yeah but i haven't really done anything that bad okay and so again we kind of in our mind have this sliding scale of really really bad sin that terrible awful people do and then like my sins over here on the lower end of the spectrum but here's the problem with that thought process sin only has one outcome Small sin, big sin, doesn't really matter. It has one eventual outcome. Uh, James chapter 1, verse number 14 says, But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. When lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. And then James kind of tacks on this little addendum to the end of that. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Now, it's interesting when we look at, at, at the book of James and how it's broken up. Sometimes people take that phrase and tack it on to the next phrase that James talks about where every good and every perfect gift cometh from above. Hey, make no mistake, 
brethren, every good and every perfect gift comes from above. But for me, when I read through that passage of Scripture, I see he's like calling back to the, what he just said there. Hey, when you sin, it's going to bring forth death. Don't make any mistakes about that, brothers. Don't think that you're above this. The Bible says, whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. That if I'm sowing to the flesh, I'm planting seeds in my flesh, I will in the end reap destruction, the Bible says. And so i got to be really, really careful that I view sin the way that God does because it always ends the same way, in misery and destruction. I've sat across the table from people so many times who tried to explain to me why their sin was okay. Yes, pastor, I stole from my employer, but did you know that my employer's been having me, you know, work extra time and I'm not even getting compensated for that? Wait, 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 wait. Doing the wrong thing because the wrong thing's been done to you isn't a biblical idea. Well, yeah, I was unfaithful to my spouse, but do you know what she's done to me over the last couple? No, I don't, don't really, that doesn't factor into the equation anywhere. Yes, I was really hard on my children. I said some ungodly, unkind things to my children, but do you know what they did? You're missing the point here. Your sin is 100% on your shoulders, and you will reap the consequences of your sin every time. So again, we can't make excuses why our sin isn't a big deal. Proverbs chapter 10, verse number 29 says, The way of the Lord is a strength to the upright, but destruction shall be to the workers of iniquity. Again, you just have to read through the Bible, and especially the book of Proverbs. Find what happens when those people chase after sin. Psalm 1-6, for the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And again, when we look at this, none of us want destruction, none of us want misery, none of us want God's chastisement. And so there's one really good, really easy answer for this. Just obey God. Well, that's hard. The concept's very simple. But it's hard in the fact that it requires us to set aside what we want to do to be able to pursue God the way he expects to be pursued. And so for you and I, we need to examine our lives and say, am I obeying the Lord or am I kind of doing my own thing? Because if I'm doing my own thing, the Bible tells me that destruction and misery is coming my way. I've counseled dozens of single adults who are in dating relationships with unbelievers The Bible says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has light with darkness. Um, You just don't do that. And so many times people say, well, pastor, I've tried to meet a good Christian guy and they're just not out there. I've been looking for a godly Christian woman and I can't find her anywhere. I've even been on Christian dating apps and I can't seem to find it anywhere. Okay, how does that allow you to violate clear scripture? I'm confused by that. Unless you feel like you're entitled to something, and then we got a whole other problem there as well. But I can tell you this, for every person who wants to, again, be in a dating relationship with an unbeliever and want to walk towards marriage and that hoping one day that they'll get saved or hoping one day that God will get a hold of their heart or they're really, really close to accepting Christ as Savior, I can point you to about a dozen folks who have brought their kids to church without their spouse because their spouse was an unbeliever for years, and it doesn't work out well. Like, the stories of those, of those situations where that really works out to the glory of God are like one in a million because you can't violate God's word and then expect God's blessings. It doesn't work that way. 
As we go through this passage this morning, we see again verse number 16, destruction of misery in their ways. Verse number 17, in the way of peace they have not known. It's important to note that when we chase after sin, we forfeit God's peace. Now, when we take a look at the word peace, we're going to dig down a little bit deeper into the word peace. It could mean a couple of different things. We'll take a look at both of those this morning. But understand this. You want the peace of God in your life. I promise. If you've never experienced it, I would would encourage you to uh, dig in and, and see what that looks like in your own life. But this is what you want. This is what your heart craves. The peace of God in your life. What does that mean? First of all, peace is the absence of conflict. So when we think of peace... We think of like peace times. And so when we experience the peace of God, this doesn't mean that there's not going to be conflict in your life. Wouldn't that be nice? The peace of God does not necessarily mean that there will be uh, no interpersonal conflict between you and your coworkers and things like that. That's not the type of peace that God wants to offer you when it comes to the absence of conflict. It's talking about peace with God. Because you and I are born enemies of God. When we get to the, the book of Romans chapter 5, by the, our current pace, we should be there maybe the beginning of next year. Uh, but that was a joke, and like two people were paying attention. Uh, Romans chapter 5 tells us in verse number 6, For ye, you were yet without strength in due time. Just turn over there. You're already in Romans already. Turn over to Romans chapter 5. I want you to see this because this passage is so good. I can't wait to get there. <laughs> Romans chapter 5, verse number 6. Six for when you were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. So I love verse number seven because it says, if you've got a really, really, really righteous man, there might be one person who would be willing to give their life for them. If you got somebody who is really, really a good person, verse number seven, some might even consider giving their life for that person. Oh man, but verse number eight, but God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us and that yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ didn't die for the religious man, the righteous man, the good man. Verse 8 says that Jesus died for sinners. Jesus didn't give his life because you and I were so close to making it to God's righteousness. We just need that little bit of push over the edge and we made it. Look at us. We weren't the good people. We were the sinners. You and I fell short of God's glory not by a couple of inches, but a couple of million miles. And we would never make it without Jesus. And Jesus died for sinners. I love verse number eight. It's so powerful. Verse number nine goes on. Much more than being now justified by his blood. The word justified means declared righteous. You and I were sinners, but we're declared righteous by the blood of Jesus. We shall be saved from wrath through him. So again, we see here that Christians who have been saved will not see God's wrath because Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. Verse number 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So this tells us that prior to Jesus Christ, you and I were the enemies of God. 
Now, this is really important concept because um, false versions of Christianity and even kind of uh, New Agey uh, universalism, Unitarianism, and things like that will say, we're all part of God's big family because God made us all. We're all God's children, all of us, whether you believe in God or not, we're all God's children. The Bible says that's not true. Again, we see here in Romans chapter 5, we are the enemies of God, not the children of God. Jesus says elsewhere that we are the children of the devil, the children of wrath, the children of disobedience. James, or John chapter 1 tells us that we are only the sons of God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so again, we need to understand our standing with God that before Jesus, you and I were the enemies of God. And sometimes people will get a little bit confused by that because they'll say, hey, you know, well, before I was saved, you know, I prayed that God would, you know, give me a job and I got the job. Okay, God is not obligated to hear your prayers if you're not his, his child. But God is a gracious God in the fact that he does good to, even to those people who hate him because he's gracious. And so may God be gracious? Possibly. Is God obligated to be gracious? Not to those that are not his children because they're his enemies. And again, one just needs to read the Old Testament to find out how God interacts with his enemies. But you and I have peace with God and are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. <laughs> so again, the day that you put your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, Savior of, from your sins, you were adopted into the family of God and you effectively waved the white flag of surrender and you say okay i'm done fighting against god i'm done doing my own thing i'm done trying to thwart god's efforts in my life i surrender and i submit myself to the authority of jesus christ you might say i don't remember saying any of that stuff the day that i got saved you might not have said those words, but your confession of your sin before God and receiving Jesus Christ as Savior effectively puts you in that position. The, the word Lord literally means master. It means he calls the shots. He tells me what to do and I do it. It's interesting in the book of Luke, people are talking to Jesus, they keep using the word Lord. He goes, hey, wait, 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 wait. I'm gonna stop you for a minute there. You keep calling me Lord, Lord, but you're not doing what I say. Like, if I'm the master, if I'm the boss, then you should obey everything that I tell you. So for you and I, the day that we waved the white flag of surrender and Jesus Christ became Lord and Master, he calls the shots from here on out. And he brought us peace with God. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 20 is in your notes. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, and by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. You and I now have, are no longer at odds with God. You and I have peace with God. Now, now mind you, this is, this is beautiful. When two sides that have been at war with one another come together, generally they need some sort of mediator between them to basically lay out the ground rules of surrender. Anybody want to take a guess at who our mediator was? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to broker peace between us and God. 
God had his conditions of surrender that were necessary. A perfect sacrifice must be made to atone for the sins of the people. And God says, I'm willing to make the sacrifice myself from that which is of highly prized value to me, my own son. They must be willing, the, the enemies of mine, must be willing to submit to my authority and receive the sacrifice that I have made. Those are the terms and conditions of this surrender. And Jesus Christ made peace with God. And so now you and I no longer are in conflict with God, but now you and I have peace with God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one, hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that, that means that when we were enemies with God, even the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances to make himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereof. Ephesians uh, chapter one, or I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter two here is talking about how Jews had access to God's promises, but for those of us that aren't Jews, we never had access to God's promises. And there was a wall between us and God, and Jesus Christ broke down that wall and called those who used to be afar off from God closer to God and hath joined us together as one with God, making peace through his cross. And so we see that you and I are able to have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now we go back to Romans chapter 3 this morning and take a look. Verse number 17, those that are without God, the way of peace have they not known. Those who are without Jesus Christ as Savior, they don't know peace the way that you and I know peace. They're still at odds with God. As the enemies of God, they continue to fight against God, continue to fight against God's purposes, continue to rebel against God, and continue to thwart his efforts to bring order to their chaos. They're the enemies of God, and they don't know the peace of God. So now there's peace with God, and then there's the peace of God. Again, none of these necessarily deal with the absence of conflict in our life. Peace is also a state of tranquility and calm that comes from resting in the sovereignty of God. So I want you to understand when we read about peace in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, we're talking about one of two concepts here. Either peace with God and the fact that Jesus Christ has brokered a peace negotiation with God so that you and I are no longer his enemies. We're actually his sons and daughters adopted into his family, seated at his table. That type of peace. Or there's the tranquility and rest that you and I have in the depths of our soul, knowing for certain that God is in charge of everything. And that's a peace that money cannot buy. This is the peace that every human heart craves and desires. It's a peace that only comes from God. Keep your finger here in Romans 3. We're going to come back in a second. But turn to the book of Philippians, if you would. I want you to turn there. Some of the verses are in your notes, but I want you to turn there because I want you to make note of this in your Bible. If you're using a mobile app, you should definitely highlight this passage of Scripture because you're going to need this 
I would even commit this to memory if I were you. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, 6, 7, and 8. I would, I would circle those verses in your Bible, highlight them, put a star beside them. You're going to need to come back to these and use these more often than not. Philippians 4, 6 says, be careful for nothing. That word careful means don't be anxious, don't be worried for anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Hey, don't worry about anything. Pray about it instead is what it says. And when you pray, don't pray with fear and doubt. Pray with thanksgiving. Hey, God, I'm not sure what's going on in my life, but I praise you in the fact that you already know and you're going to see me through this. That's praying with thanksgiving. Hey, God, I'm not really sure what's going on here, but I'm praying that you would work this out for your glory and for my good because I trust you. That's a prayer of thanksgiving. And verse number seven is a promise. If you do that, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, this is that deep tranquility and rest in your soul, shall keep your heart and minds through Christ Jesus. So all of your thoughts, your heart, will be kept. And that word kept means to grab hold of, to arrest. It's like taking into a bear hug and holding tightly. Our hearts and minds will be kept by the power of Christ Jesus so that we're not worried. So we're not greatly concerned about how this whole situation is going to work out. God's given us a lot of peace knowing that he's in control and knowing that he's in charge and he's working this out for his glory and for my good. I can have peace in the midst of massive chaos knowing that Jesus is in charge. You think about the apostles on the Sea of Galilee when there arose a storm on the sea and Jesus was taking a nap. I'm just trying to be like Jesus when I take naps. And so, oh man, that was supposed to be a good joke and nobody laughed. And now you're laughing because you want to make me feel better. Uh, And so, anyways, uh, Jesus, massive storm on the Sea of Galilee and there's a storm and everybody's worried and somebody goes and wakes Jesus up and says, Master, you don't even care that we're all about to die and you don't even care. You're just taking a nap. And Jesus is like, what? And he stands up and rebukes the wind and the seas and everything becomes calm. And Jesus wanted them to have peace in the storm, but they only had peace when the storm was gone. Jesus is like, oh, no, 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 no. I need you to understand that I'm in charge of the storm. And you and I can have peace in the middle of a storm. When people who have terrible health diagnoses can have peace, it's because the peace of God is at work in their life. Well, what about this? What about that? Yeah, I'm not really worried about that because my mind has been arrested by Jesus Christ, and he's given me just an overflowing peace in this situation. I'm not sure how it's all going to work out, but I can trust him, that's for sure. And then it goes on, verse number 8, and again, this is another verse to circle and commit to memory. For those of you that worry, for those of you that have anxiety about situations and for what if this and what if that, and I haven't thought about this, I haven't thought about that. Verse number eight says this, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So don't ponder all the negative situations. Don't ponder 
all the, oh no, what if this happens? Don't worry about how this is going to come together. Or, There's no way in the world that this could ever happen. The Bible says think on the things that are true. I, I, I don't know if what's going to happen tomorrow, but I know that God already knows. That's true. I'm going to focus, I'm going to think on the things that are true. God has always been faithful to me, and he's not going to stop tomorrow. That's a true statement. God loves me, and I trust him as my father, that he's going to take really good care of me. That's a true statement. I believe that God is the type of father who will give me good things if I ask and he's not the type of father that I ask for bread, he's going to give me a rock. That's true. I'm going to think on that. I'm not going to think on like, oh, what if I get this? What if I get that? What if, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if there's a car accident? What if there's a, well, my plane goes down? What if this? I'm not going to think on those things because those things are not true. I'm going to think on the things that are true and are honest and of good reports. I'm going to think of the things that have virtue that are helpful. This is not the power of positive thinking. This is changing our mind to have the mind of Jesus Christ. The power of positive thinking means I want to think positive thoughts and positive energy will be attracted to me. I'm going to look in the mirror and I'm going to say affirmations and I'm going to feel better about myself and I'm going to feel bigger about myself and I'm going to only think positive thoughts and the energy of the universe will find me. That's garbage. But when I say I'm going to focus on biblical thoughts, that's precisely what God wants for you and I. And what happens? Again, we take, look at verse number seven, the promise, the peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So peace comes from thinking the right thoughts. Peace comes from knowing Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse number 33, these things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Mind you, Jesus says, these things have I spoken unto me that in me you might have peace. And Jesus says, whatever you're facing in the world, I've already overcome it. Even things like death. Jesus has overcome sin, death, and the grave. What should you and I fear? So peace comes from knowing Jesus and knowing Jesus is in charge. Peace comes from the Holy Spirit. It's important to understand that true peace from God is a result of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, and you cannot manufacture that. Let me just say this. I think that there's value in certain things like meditation. No lie for me. Um, I struggled with some anxiety and I'd uh, gone to my doctor several years ago because I, I couldn't catch my breath at certain times. And so I went to his office, he sits me down and he's talking to me. He's like, okay, I'm going to start my stopwatch. Hold your breath for as long as you can. Like, okay. And so he starts it. No lie, I got to like six seconds and I was like, ah. And he was like, you can't hold your breath for longer than six seconds? And I go, no. I said, I don't have really good lung capacity. I don't have great cardio. And he's just like, no, like you should be able to hold your breath for 15, 20 seconds. And I was just like, I can't. And he was like, okay, it's anxiety. I was just like, blah, 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 blah. I'm, I'm, I don't do the whole anxiety thing. I'm a Christian. You know, I'll give it to the Lord and stuff like that. And I said, no. I spend time in the Bible every day. I spend time in prayer every day. Like, I'm not an anxious person. And he asked me a really interesting question that, that man, I've, I've struggled with off and on. 
he asks me the question, he says, do you find a lot of tranquility in prayer? And I said, honestly, I don't. I really don't. It's, it's heavy when I pray because uh, not only am I praying for myself and praying for my family, but I'm praying for the needs of our church family, which at any given moment, we're in an especially heavy season right now in our church family. Just a lot of hurt and a lot of, a lot of heavy stuff going on. And I said, bearing those burdens before the Lord is really heavy for me. And he said, you should try meditation. I was like, ah, time out. I don't do meditation. That's where I'm supposed to sit and chant and stuff like that. I don't do stuff like that. And he, goes, no. he said, no, you need to sit still and just breathe. For how long? He's like, 10 or 15 minutes? Talk. I don't have time to sit and breathe. And he was like, <laughs> you know what I'm getting ready to say? That's your problem. And, and so for me, no lie, I usually take probably four or five times a week, about 10 to 15 minutes, I just lay down and breathe. I have an app on my phone, make sure that I don't fall asleep and stuff like that. It doesn't play weird music or anything like that. It's just dead quiet, and it teaches you how to breathe and just relax. And I found that's been helpful for me. But I say that to say this, that can't bring peace, okay? Because peace comes from the Holy Spirit at work in your life. That can bring calm, that can help your body just to be able to relax and come down for a minute and not think about anything for 10 minutes. But that doesn't bring peace because here's the thing. You can meditate all you want to. You can breathe all you want to. You can watch sunsets. You can watch sunrises. But when you stand up, your problems are still there if you're bearing 100% of the weight of that. Okay? Peace comes from inside as the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. comes from the Holy Spirit. You can't manufacture that. You can't make it up on your own. Can you tune out thoughts or forget things? Sure, but your problems are still there, and you need a source of peace to help you to carry that, and it comes from the Holy Spirit. When you and I walk in the Spirit, the peace of God will guide us, Turn your foot over to the book of Colossians. If you're still in Philippians 4, you can turn over just a page or two in your Bible, Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse number 13 is a great verse. You should circle that, star that, underline that. Again, you'll need it. Colossians 3, 13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, also do ye. In other words, be patient with people and forgive them. If so don't know how to do that, forgive the way that Jesus forgave you. And above all things, putting on charity, that's love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. We'll come back to that phrase in just a second. To the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That phrase, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That word rule means to referee, to determine what's in bounds and out of bounds. And what it means rule, it doesn't mean like call the shots or boss around. It means to discern to determine what's right versus what's wrong, what's appropriate versus what's inappropriate. And we should be guided by the peace of God. 
Now, we'll get to that in just a second. This is really important but because the peace of God can sometimes be subjective. I feel a lot of peace about what I'm doing. That can't be the only determining factor whether or not you have peace of what's right and wrong, wise, unwise. But if I am obeying the Lord, I'm obeying God, I'm obeying Scripture, I'm obeying godly counsel, in my life I should have peace. And that peace will continue to show me that I'm on the right path. If I'm Again, this all assumes that I'm walking in the Spirit and I have the peace of God already. The peace of God will guide me and direct me on my life. But I always tell people this, peace cannot be the only determining factor of right versus wrong. So many times people say, well, I know what I'm doing. It's violating Scripture, but I just have a lot of peace about it. That's, that peace is not from God. I'll, I'll guarantee you that. The peace of God will never cause you to violate Scripture. If you're truly walking in the Spirit and in tune with God, you can never sin against God and yet have the peace of God at the same time. And so I always encourage people, beware of following peace as the only arbiter between right or wrong, wisdom versus foolishness, because a hardness of heart and satanic deception can fabricate a false peace. It's a really long statement there to tell you don't just follow what you assume is peace. It could be a lie. It could be a fabrication. I sat across the table from a man one time who told me that he was leaving his wife of three plus decades. And I said, what you're doing is sin, what you're doing is destructive, and you're ruining dozens of people's lives. And here's what was, what was said to me. I've prayed about it, and God's given me a lot of peace. <laughs> I probably should have been more um, judicious in my words that I chose, but I said, you're a liar. You're a liar. You cannot sin against God and have the peace of God at the same time. You just can't. Because when you sin against God, you forfeit the peace of God. You give it up. You don't have right. You don't have access to it any longer. But what was this man trying to explain to me? I have come to peace with what I have. Okay, the peace that you've come to is not the peace of God. It's different. It's a fabrication of your own heart or it's a deception of Satan. This person in particular had been deceived into believing that he would be better off by charting his own path, disobeying God's word, disobeying scripture, disobeying godly counsel, and that everything would work itself out because his heart was in the right place. No, no, no. Your heart is in the wrong place because you've been deceived. And so again, in cases like this, we see uh, in the book of Jonah, we don't have time to read the whole passage of scripture this morning, but God told Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh and preach against them. Tell them I'm, I'm coming with chaos and destruction and judgment and wrath. And Jonah says, no. And he goes to Tarshish. And there arises this massive storm where even the pagan unbelievers are going out and saying, hey, if you've got a God, you should totally call unto him now because we're all going to die. And does anybody remember where they found Jonah? Anybody? Asleep. Jonah could have said, I just got a lot of peace right now. I'm just going to go and take a nap while everybody else is running Everybody else is about to die. God's wrath is being poured out upon these people. And I've just got a lot of peace. I think I'm going to go take a nap. Is that the peace of God? It's not. 
It's a satanic deception. It's a fabrication of our own heart. You cannot have the peace of God while actively disobeying God. You forfeit that. Again, if we go back to Romans chapter 3, we see their way of peace is not in them. They don't know the peace of God. And so, again, to choose sin is to turn against God. Turn back to Romans chapter 3. I had a, uh, a really good discussion a few months ago with some of our single adults. They asked a question. Here's the thing. I just want you to know this. I love questions. Questions means the wheels are turning upstairs and, and you're thinking. I love questions. And so never be afraid of asking questions. I always tell people this. The truth doesn't fear questions. God wants to answer your questions. Sometimes your answers are, are we don't really know. We just have to trust God through this. But they asked the question, can one be a Christian and also be an enemy of God? Because before we were declared enemies of God, now that we're saved, can we not be the enemies of God? The, the thing is, is when you and I rebel against our Father, we're choosing a side against Him. And if you look up the word enemy, the word enemy is an interesting word. It means one who is opposed to the will of another and seeking to undo the plans of another. Interesting thought, huh? So can we be the enemies of God while still be saved? Absolutely. And so think about this for a second. The heavenly Father who saved you from your sin, who gave his only begotten son, who shed his blood on the cross as payment for your sin and mine, who graciously adopted you into his family and gave you a seat at the table, calls you son, calls you daughter, has prepared an inheritance for you in heaven one day, you have chosen to get up from that table and to actively seek to thwart his perfect plan for your life as an act of rebellion and as an act of enmity. The word enmity means you've chosen to be an enemy of. Think about that. Friendly fire, right? I'm turning on the one who actually saved me and seeking to rebel against him. James chapter 4, verse number 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever shall be a friend of the world is an enemy of God? Pretty harsh, huh? This is what happens when we chase after the things of the world, when we chase after sin. Romans chapter 8, verse number 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 19, what, know you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Wait, 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 you think that you belong to yourself? Oh, no, 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 you've been purchased with a price. Oh, you think you can do your own thing? Oh, no, no, you can't do that any longer because you belong to God now. Well, I don't want to go belong to God, I want to do my own thing. That's an act of rebellion. It's an insurrection, it's mutiny. It's friendly fire on purpose. God doesn't stand for that. And you, you and I, when we do that, we have to recognize I am forfeiting the blessings of God. I'm forfeiting the peace of God. And I'm putting myself in danger of God's chastisement. Careful. To choose to sin is to surrender the peace that comes from walking in obedience. Verse number 17, those without Jesus, the way of peace they have not known. 
here's the thing. You and I know God's peace. You and I have experienced God's peace. You and I have been called sons and daughters when we used to be enemies. Why would we turn against our Father? That just doesn't even make sense. Why would we choose to disobey God? Do we feel like God's holding out on us? Or there's something else out there that we can't have access to that God is trying to keep from us, to keep us from having fun? You couldn't be further from the truth. God knows what's best for you. And as a loving Father, He wants to protect you from the things that would harm you. Don't think that you're smarter than God. I promise you, you're not. If you're here today and there's never been a time in your life where you've been saved or born again, this peace that I'm talking about, you don't understand it. You've never really experienced it, but I want you to. Put your faith in Jesus today. Turn to him. Make him the Lord and master of your life. Receive him as Savior. Have your sins forgiven, and there'll be a peace that you've never experienced before that will flow from your spirit. For those of us that have been saved or born again, Is there sin in your life that you've chosen to chase after because you thought it would bring you what you want? I guarantee you're not experiencing the peace of God the way he wants you to. Whatever you're hanging on to, that sin that you have that's so precious to you, is it worth sacrificing the peace of God? Is it worth sacrificing God's blessing on your life? Is it worth putting yourself in danger and the people around you in danger of God's chastisement to hang on to your sin for just a little bit longer because the end is the way of death, the Bible says. Not worth it at all. Let's walk in holiness, righteousness, obedience this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m.